It was a night, kind of like tonight. It was dark, it was cold, and so I was wearing a hoodie much like the one I have on now. I had my hoodie on, like so, and it was probably maybe one or two in the morning. I was walking back home. I had my backpack on because I'm a student. I have my backpack with me everywhere. Even though I didn't have books inside, I don't know what I had inside, but I was carrying my backpack, walking the streets of Norwalk in the middle of the night. Pretty typical, actually. That's what I did. But as I make my way home, I notice in the corner of my eye a police car driving by. I notice them, and certainly they noticed me. And so when this police car stopped in the middle of the street and then backed up, I knew I was in trouble. So I walked faster. They proceeded to turn their car my direction. I kept walking, just hoping things would kind of turn out okay and maybe that they would notice that it was pretty non-threatening. But then I heard the low hum of the engine behind me. I knew that they were tailing me. Then I saw a bright light surrounding me. It was the, the spotlight. You know the one that they have on the side? They, they turn it on you and they could just see everything, that super bright spotlight. So they turned the spotlight on me and then I heard over the speaker, pull over. I'm like, I'm not in the car, bro. <laughs> I, I could just step to the side. <laughs> so I did. I was raised to, to believe that the cops are good people who do good things, and so I should respect them. And so, of course, I, I, I did that. I, I went over and I stepped aside and I did what they asked me to do. Came over, there was two of them. I remember there was a guy and a girl. And the, the girl says, so what are you doing out here tonight? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm actually walking home. <laughs> she says, oh, really? I said, yeah. She says, let me see your backpack. So I said, okay, okay. I took my backpack off and I gave it to her. And so she takes it to the patrol car and sets it on the, on the hood and just starts kind of rifling through my stuff. He starts asking questions like, so uh, what's your address? How old are you? You know, where do you come from? You know, he's asking these questions that, you know, police officers tend to ask. And so I was, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am. No, I was deference and respect, doing my best, doing the best I could to not get myself arrested that night. I succeeded. The end of that exchange, they let me go. They said, you know what? We, we got to report that some, you know, suspicious character is walking around, kind of fits your profile and description. So we thought we'd pull you over just to be safe about it. And I said, okay. I mean, what's funny though, is that they pulled me over in front of a house, like, you know, right here, two houses down. That's where I lived. <laughs> so I'm like, I just live right here, bro. You could have just knocked on the door and people there would vouch for me. But anyhow, that night I came to realize that, you know what? I like police. It's a little weird to come in contact with them and have this experience because not only did they check my backpack, I should let you know. If you ever travel with me, you'll notice something that always happens. I always get randomly searched. Well, that night was no different. I got randomly patted down and that's a little awkward. You ever had that happen where they're like touching on your leg and you know, they're doing that thing. I had to go through that. Uh, but at the end of it, again, I, I went home kind of shaking like, oh, that was weird. I hope that never happens again. But all that Worked out in my favor. Nothing happened that night, but I learned a lesson. Came to realize that, 
you know, much of how I feel about the police or any authority for that matter is going to depend on, you know, what I believe about them and what kind of experience I have. Their authority and their position puts me in a difficult spot. Like I should just give them deference. I should give them, you know, uh, respect and that kind of thing. But your experience and your belief is going to influence how you interact with them. And that same principle is true in your relationship with the God that you serve. Because here's the thing, God's not telling you to pull over so he can frisk you or check out your, your backpack. But here's what God says. Essentially, it goes like this. I'm the creator. You're the creature. You should worship me. And your response to God is going to depend on those same two things, your experience with God and what you believe about God. By the way, I'm really cold. Are you okay if I keep this hoodie on? I don't look too suspicious, right? Too sus? You can't handle the sus. What you believe and what your experience with God. In fact, it's because of what you believe and it's partly because of your experience with God that you have difficulty fulfilling the command to worship God. For some of you guys, you come to worship experiences like this and the songs are going off and really you're bored. Like, I don't, I, I don't really get this. I don't understand why Christians sing. I'm not, I'm not into that. That's not my thing. I'm, I'm bored by that. I might think the worship is boring. I might think that God himself is boring. For some of you, boredom is your common experience when you come to worship God, when you sing to him. For some of you, it's not that worship is boring. It's that you just don't like it. I don't like, I don't like the way that guy sings. I don't like the way that she hit that note. I don't like the strumming chords that they play. I don't like this, that, or the other thing. You don't like that, and so you disengage. Again, all this goes back to your experience with God and your beliefs about him. In those two cases, whether it's boredom or dislike, uh, you are bored with God and you dislike what God calls you to do. For some of you, you might be confused. You might read the lyrics on the screen and be like, what does that even mean? From God, our heavenly father, the blessed babe was born. It's kind of weird that they put it that way. You might read those lyrics or you might sing them and say, I don't even understand what that means. You know, what's up with the thous and the thines and the, you know, the therefores? Uh, I'm not really tracking with that. That doesn't really hit me where I am. No one sings like that these days. You might also say, you know what? Uh, it's not that I'm bored. It's not that I dislike it. It's not that I'm confused. I just feel like it's an obligation that I have to fulfill. It's like when your parents tell you to eat your vegetables, like you'll eat them, but you're not necessarily going to like it. You're not going to love it. You're going to do what you have to do because you have to do it, but not because you feel like, oh, that's what I really want to do. Some of you guys feel that way about worship, uh, singing to God or giving him your praise and adoration and affection is like, well, I guess I should because he's God and everything, but I don't really want to. I have to, so I will. And still, for some of you, you're Christians, you love God, you, you love the people of God, but you get a little nervous when it comes to showing your love for him in front of others. You know, there's this cute girl next to me. What's she going to think? I'm going to look like an idiot. I don't sing that well. Or, you know, there's this cute guy that I'm into and he doesn't, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. And if I get too, too Christian-y, he may not really be into me. So I don't want to go that direction. I want to protect my reputation. I don't really want people to think poorly about me. Tonight and tomorrow, not tomorrow, next week, tonight and next week, we're going to talk and answer the question, does God really care about your worship? Does it really matter to him what you do, how you do it, and the way that you approach him in worship? And really, there's a lot of text that we can cover, but tonight we're just going to cover one text and we're going to do it pretty quick because I know you're cold, so am I. 
First Chronicles chapter 16 is where we're going to look tonight. And one of the things that the, the, the chronicle writer, the psalmist in this case, is saying is, I care that you understand this, how you approach God, what your worship looks like. God cares about that. And in fact, here's how, here's how I kind of summarize the idea here. The, the, first, the first Chronicles 16 kind of summarizes for us because of who God is, because he's a a good king who has a proven track record, God expects from us, God calls us to give him extravagant, that is effusive, large, great, extravagant, and expansive praise, expansive worship. Because God is a good king who has a proven track record, he calls us to give him extravagant and expansive worship. First Chronicles 16 is going to give us some insight tonight for how to approach this. And surprise, surprise, God cares. And I'm going to prove to you in the text why this matters to you. Whether you're bored, whether you dislike it, whether you're confused, whether you find yourself embarrassed, this text has something for you. First Chronicles 16, starting at verse number eight, says this. Check it out. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And by the way, open your Bibles or turn them on because I don't have them on the screen for you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his name. Glory, rather, in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. And who's he talking to? Verse 13. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Now, I don't know if you could tell or not, but all throughout these few verses that we read, it is peppered with imperatives. Take a look again. Give thanks. Verse 8. Call upon his name. Verse 8. Make known his deeds. Verse 8. Verse 9. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his works. Verse 10. Glory in his name. Verse 11. Seek the Lord. Verse 12. Remember. Those are all imperatives. They're telling us something to do. And here's what I want to point out to you first and foremost. As Christians or even non-Christians, whoever you are tonight, the Bible does not call us to a suggestion about worshiping God. The Bible calls us to an obligation, a duty, a responsibility to worship God. Point number one, obey the command to worship your king. Let's start there. The command to worship God is just that. It's a command. Now, some might bristle at this and say, well, man, it sounds like God is a thirsty girl just looking for compliments. Tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me I'm lovely. You know? I'm not that pretty, right? And of course, your answer is, no, you're beautiful, right? It seems like God is this kind of needy person. That's not how God tells us to think about it. In fact, it's kind of like this. If you have an eye device or an inferior Android device, the manufacturer tells you, uh, plug it in to this kind of charger. Plug it into this kind of outlet. You don't have a choice on it. You plug it in with this way, with this kind of voltage. Plug it in with this kind of specification. It's kind of a command, actually. It tells you how to do that. Now, no one, none of us is going to say, well, how dare you, Apple? How dare you, Android, tell me how to treat my phone? I will plug it into whatever I want. In fact, this elephant looks like a perfectly fine device. I'm going to plug it into my elephant. No one's going to get upset about that. No one's going to say that because Apple, who is, or Android, 
are the king of their products and then know how the user should use it, how the user should respond. In a similar sense, when God calls you and I to worship him, it's not because God is needy looking for compliments. Rather, the creator knows how the created should live. And in fact, it's not just a here's what you should do for me. It's when you worship, this is what makes you whole. It is what leads to your flourishing. This is what makes you human. You were designed by him to worship him. And when you do that, that's what feeds you. Like a battery being plugged into the outlet, you are being charged up and being fed. You are living out your purpose. And when you give yourself to worship fully, when you obey that command, it's like saying, it's like God saying, hey, you need to plug into my power and charge up. This is how you as a creature fulfill your divine obligation. This is how you live a truly full flourishing life. Obey the command to worship your king. Now there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do this. In fact, just a couple chapters ago in 1 Chronicles 13, David and a few others are bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which is basically a box that was covered in gold and has angels on top. The Ark of the Covenant was being transported from one place to the city of David. Now, they were excited about this. As they were bringing this Ark of the Covenant to the city of David, Jerusalem, there was dancing and singing, and David was just getting down with his bad self. He was busting a move, doing the shuffle. He's like, yeah, you know, he was getting down. Their worship was sincere, but they made a critical error in that the worship that they offered God, although sincere, was not the worship that God wanted. And so one of his friends did the unthinkable. As the Ark of the Covenants was making its way on the road to the city of David, one of the animals lost his footing, and so the Ark tipped over. He reaches out to catch the Ark and instantly loses his life. David was frustrated and angry. Why would you do this, God? The reason why that their worship was not the right worship. In fact, their carrying the Ark of the Covenant was very specific. God had specific instructions. And when they did not obey that, God reacted. In this chapter, David does it the right way. He takes the Ark of the Covenant and brings it properly. And now, as it's making its way into the temporary edifice, the tent, he's writing these songs now. He's declaring to the people, look at what God has done. This is great. This is amazing. And he's giving them instruction through this psalm about how to worship God. So when we talk about obeying the command to worship your king, this is David saying, look at what God has done for us. This is great. This is glorious. So obey the command to worship your king. First and foremost, look at verse eight. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. The first thing that you need to do, obey the command to worship your king, is to obey the command to worship him with thankfulness. Obey the command to worship him with thankfulness. And so many of us, we just finished Thanksgiving, you know, you had your meal, the turkey, the ham, you know, you sat outside maybe this year, and you think, okay, great, Thanksgiving is finished, my my duty to God and to others is completed. But the thing is, uh, Thanksgiving is not a one day a year experience for the Christian. This is an every day of our lives experience. Well, I don't feel thankful. Well, here's the thing about that. Gratitude is not primarily a feeling. It is a practice, especially toward God, especially toward God. See, gratitude comes from the place of the attitude that says, I'm better than I deserve. Yeah, I'm cold right now, but I'm better than I deserve. 
yeah, I don't have the house that I want. I don't have the clothes that I want. I don't have the kind of popularity I want, but I'm better than I deserve. God, you've been good to me. And that's where you need to direct your attention. When I say to obey the command to worship your king with thankfulness, this is the way that you enter in to a, a real worship experience with God. It's got to start with the place of God. Thank you that I'm here. I mean, as Evan was praying you guys out or praying the worship team up, he was saying, thanks that we're here, even though it's cold. Thank you that, God, you've blessed us with this place to meet. Thank you, God, that we have the privilege of being able to gather together. This is the way it should be. Look at verse 9. Not only should we obey the command to worship our king with thankfulness, but look at this. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Obey the command to worship your king with singing. Guys, I, I, I love when I can hear you back there. That warms my pastoral heart. I love when I can hear you lifting up your voices to King Jesus. And in fact, let me just say with boldness here, that's exactly what God wants. God wants you to sing to him. You know, I don't know if you guys ever watch I Love Lucy, you'll see that, you know, sometimes you'll catch them and they'll be singing together and Lucy's all off pitch and she's off key. And, you know, they're, they're just joking about that. It always confused me because that was weird. Why are they singing? That's weird. Turns out that in yesteryear, people used to sing for fun. Like that was what they would do. Let's go to someone's house and let's sing. Okay, let's do that. I don't think, I, I've never done that. Maybe you have, but I've never done that. And the thing is, we're not in a singing culture anymore. That's not our thing. Unless it's your birthday, uh, maybe your wedding, we might sing to you. But otherwise, there's not a really, we're not a singing culture. But that doesn't excuse us. See, God doesn't, this sounds harsh, but here, God doesn't care that the seasons or the culture changes. What he cares about is that you give him your undivided love and loyalty through a multitude of ways, but through singing. God calls you, commands you to sing. By the way, I did some research for you, and I found out that there's actually some benefits to singing. Uh, there's a lot of articles and studies that show that your brain is benefited by your singing. In fact, here are some of the benefits. Number one, when you sing, there's a calming and energizing effect on your mood. Well, that's kind of cool. Uh, when you sing, it can count as a form of exercise, increasing blood circulation and strengthening your diaphragm. When you sing, it can improve mental alertness. Check that out. Maybe next time you go to a test, you can sing beforehand. Um, it also creates better social connections. Not exactly sure how that works, but that, that's what they wrote. And lastly, and this is the one that I find really most fascinating, uh, singing can aid with memory and recall. That's kind of cool. When we obey the command to worship our king, part of that is it's not only singing, but it's not less than that. So when we sing, we are obeying the command that God has for us to sing to him. Obey the command to worship your king with thankfulness, with singing. Look at verse 10. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. You're taking note of my subpoints here. With thankfulness, with singing, with praise. With praise. You see, the uniqueness and the beauty of God should result in us saying, God, you are amazing. You are awesome. To glory in his holy name in verse 10 is to take pride and delight and joy in God's good, perfect, holy reputation. It's kind of like, have you ever had a friend who, who's friends with a celebrity? I don't know. Um, I used to be a skater a uh, long time ago. Uh, and whenever I found out like, oh, you skated with so-and-so, you know, I guess today it'd be like, oh, you skate with Ryan Sheckler? Is he still cool? I don't know. Okay, most of you guys who are not skaters don't know. But if, you, if you're like, oh, you, you hang out with, you hang out with Taylor Swift? And then that person's like, yup, yup, yup. 
they are kind of riding the wave of that person's, you know, that person's celebrity. The glory in the holy name of God is for us to say, God, it is awesome that you are perfect, good, righteous, and holy, and I have the privilege of being part of your people. God commands you to worship him with praise. Verse 11, here's something that's interesting. Seek the Lord and his strength. Got to obey the command to worship your king with effort, effort. You come to the worship experience. Your job is not just to sit there passively, but to give God something that matters to you, to give him your energy, to give him your focus and your attention. That's a big part of our worship experience, but that takes energy and effort. But I want to point your attention. Look at verse 11 again. Seek the Lord and his strength. You see, one of the wonderful things about worship is that uh, even though God is blessed and honored by the things that you sing to him and the way that you approach him, what happens is that God is giving you strength. God is not saying, hey, come and worship me and therefore deplete yourself and don't have anything as a result of this. God is saying, when you worship me, you are receiving my strength. You're tapping into my energy source. You're tapping into the fact that you are made to do this. And as you fulfill this command, you are going to be blessed by this. Any Christian who's worshiped God knows this, that when you worship him, there is something energizing and charging about it. It's not like a net loss. You don't worship God and suddenly you walk away and be like, oh, I was terrible. I hate my life. No, when you walk away from worshiping God with who you are, with what you have to offer, it's energizing. It's motivating. It's securing. Seek the Lord in his strength. Worship is drawing on the strength of God. And last, verses 12 and 13 in 1 Chronicles 16, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. And then he's talking to the people. Oh, offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He's talking to a certain demographic and he's saying, think about what God has done and who you are. Look, if you ever lack, if you're a Christian and you ever lack the ability to come before God with, a, with an, honest, uh, an honest heart, with full energy, the psalmist says, don't think about yourself Think about who God is and who he's made you to be. Okay, so think about this. If you are a Christian, he calls you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The moment you became a Christian, you became part of God's family, a royal family that will endure forever. The world around us will perish. In fact, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, uh, the the lust of the eyes, uh, the lust of the flesh and pride of life is passing away along with the world and its desires. But those who do the will of God will live forever. When you became a Christian, you 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 were given a new identity. You're no longer subject to condemnation. You will no longer ever have to face God and him say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. When you became a Christian, you took on a new identity. And that new identity was made all the more to worship God. To think about the context in which you worship him. Who God is and who you are. Who God is and who you are. Obey the command to worship your king with thankfulness, with singing, with praise, with effort, and with context. Why? Well, because God is a good king with a proven track record. And because God is a good king with a proven track record, we are now called to give to him, to render to God extravagant and expansive worship. How do we do that? Look at verses 14 through 22 of 1 Chronicles 16. 14 through 22. 
1 Chronicles 16, verse 14, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. And what he's saying by that is you can see God's works displayed across all creation, across all generations. Look at verse 15. Remember his covenant forever. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. And then he goes on to explain what that covenant is. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you are few in number of little account, and when you were sojourners in the land of Canaan, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Now think about this. What we just read is David writing songs. These are, people are singing these lyrics and all throughout these lyrics, he's saying, remember this, remember this patriarch, remember this event. Remember that he took Israel, uh, he took Jacob and then Israel, and then he protected them. He's drawing them through a history saying, when you sing worship to God, think about what's happened to you in, in your life. He's tracing out a line as they sing, saying, think about these things. Think about what God has done for you. Think about how God has protected you. Think about what is most important. Think. That word's powerful, which is why point number two, I put it like this. You need to think about what you sing to the king. Think about what you sing to the king. For far too many of us, we space out when we're singing worship songs, right? We're, we're singing and we kind of know the melody, so we're singing along, but every now and then, I notice that sometimes I personally can space out. Sometimes instead of singing, you know, I, I see a generation rising up to take their place with selfless faith. You might sing, I see a generation rising up with selfish faith. Oops, not what I meant. Not what I meant. You've done that before, anybody? No, just me? Okay. How about this one? You know, <laughs> Be thou my vision. We've sung this one before, right? You might have accidentally sung. <laughs> I can't remember the melody now. I thy great father and thou my true son. It's not how it goes. Not how it goes. How deep the father's love for us. Have you done this one before? Uh, and this one I actually have done. Um, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice. You know that one, right? Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. You might accidentally sing, ashamed I hear his mocking voice call out among the scoffers, which kind of gets it wrong a little bit. That's a little wrong. So here's the thing. Not only does thinking help you engage with the worship, but it helps you avoid singing heresy. That's, that's probably a good thing. Thinking helps you avoid singing heresy. <laughs> but there's a couple more reasons. Look at verse 14 through 18 with me. Rapid fire. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. Remember, he's tracing the line of history here. See, here's what's going to happen. The more you think, the better your worship will be. The more you think, the better your worship will be. And that will happen in at least three areas. The more you think, the better your worship will be in at least, A, your understanding. Your understanding. Think about this. When you're singing worship songs, if you're thinking about what you're singing and you're analyzing as you sing, you're going to have a greater understanding of the words that you sing to God. For instance, uh, one of my favorite uh, Christmas songs is Oh Holy Night. 
You guys know the song, Oh Holy Night? Oh Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. You want me to sing? I'll just finish it. <laughs> There's a line there. There's a line. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. I, I, what does pining mean? Like a tree? <laughs> the pine tree, the long lay the world with a bunch of pine trees? I, don't, I, didn't, I, I did not know, so I had to look it up. Pine means to yearn deeply. The archaic use, which is I think the way that the, so, the song is using it, is to be discontented and fret. So to long lay the world in sin and error pining is to say that the world for a long time was engaging in sin and because of that was discontented and fretful. Oh, that adds a little bit of new shade and nuance to the song. You see, now that I understand that, I can sing that better because I know what I'm singing. Simple, right? Your worship will be better when you think about it because you'll be able to understand it. The more you think, the better your worship will be, in, first of all, your understanding, but second of all, in your retention. In verse 15, the psalmist calls, uh, calls all of us to remember. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done for us. And as we already made the, the comment here, your singing is an actual great memory device. How many of you guys learned your ABCs from singing them? How many of you guys learned your books of the Bible from singing them? Like all of us. God calls us to sing because of the way it helps us remember. It helps us retain the truths of our faith, which are so meaningful and so precious. Singing helps with our understanding. Singing helps with our retention. And lastly, take a look at verse 19 through 22. 1 Chronicles 16, 19 to 22. He says, When you were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in the land, you were strangers in the land, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them, and he rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. What David's trying to do here is to recall, think about what God has done for you, and how should that make you feel? You were little and small, and yet God protected you. Is not God good to you? That should inspire confidence and faith. That should have an emotional impact. The more you think, the better your worship will be an emotional impact. Earlier I said, you have some problems with being bored and you're, you're, you're not engaging. And the reason why is because you're not doing real worship. You're not thinking about what you're singing. You're not analyzing the lyrics. You're not sending those lyrics to God. And because of that, that's why you're bored. That's why you have difficulty having a great time in worship, regardless of who's singing, regardless of what the song is. You can still have a great time singing to the Lord. The emotional impact comes from when you are engaging with what you're singing. You bored during worship? Engage with the lyrics. Do you dislike it? Think about what you're singing. The more you think, the better your worship will be in understanding, in retention, and in emotional impact. You see, feelings follow thinking as naturally as a dog follows his owner. As you think about the truths of Scripture, the feelings will eventually follow the way that you're thinking about God. The sim sense, if you're thinking about something else entirely, no wonder you're not able to have a great time in worship. When you're singing A Mighty Fortress, if you're engaging with those lyrics, A mighty fortress is our God. If you're thinking about what you're singing, you should have a bold confidence, like God is strong. He's a fortress. He's a protector. I can trust him. Or when you're singing, holy, holy, holy. Oh, sorry, that was terrible. <laughs> it's cold out. When you're singing, holy, 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 
there can be, if you're thinking about what you're singing, a, a reverence and an awe that comes from who God is saying, that's amazing. You are awesome and glorious. You're beyond my comprehension. God, you are a, a wonderful God. You're a holy God. Think about what you sing to the king because the more you think, the better your worship will be. Because, because God is a good king with a proven track record, we're commanded to give him extravagant and expansive worship. These last few verses tell us where that expansive nature comes from. Real worship offered to God is never satisfied with just having a private relationship with God. Look at verses 23 through 34. Read it with me here. Notice the shift in personnel. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among all the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For the gods, all the gods of the peoples, those are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Well, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And what you saw in those few verses is a worship and a praise that says, it's not enough that I worship God. It's not enough that I give him my vocal affirmation and adoration. It must be that everything and everyone in all creation sing praises to the God of our fathers. And why? Because he's the creator. He's the king. He's the great one. Everything else is worthless and meaningless apart from his honor, his glory, his prestige. If you want to know what real worship is, if you want to engage with the kind of worship God calls you to, point number three, rouse others to worship the king with you. Rouse others to worship the king with you. This means that we have to be aware that there is a kind of response that we have that doesn't, that doesn't sit satisfied with us being okay with just our group here. Well, hey, we're going to heaven. We're doing pretty good. No, I want everyone to worship, every knee to bow, every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is God to the glory and praise of the Father. Whenever I passed, uh, on my way to work, I would pass a couple of Trump campaigns and you would see flags waving. You'd see shirts prominently and proudly displayed. Uh, you see you know, a couple lawn signs that says blue lives matter or you know, keep America great. You know, and it was cool. I'd walk across by and they'd have this great display. But a few times as I made my way to work, I would see not Trump displays, but I would see Biden-Harris displays. Now, there was a difference between these two. The Trump displays were pretty mellow, pretty low-key. But the Biden-Harris people, man, I got to hand it to them. Like, there was this old dude, like, busting a move on the side of the street. I thought he was going to break a hip. I was concerned. 
but his energy was there. His passion was there. Like I, as I passed by, I'm like, I have to look. What's this guy, you know, what's going on here? And so I'd see them waving flags and, you know, moving signs around. And one guy was trying to do the thing where the people flip the signs, you know, where they do that thing. And one guy was trying to do that. And I thought, you know what? I may not agree with what they're, what they're shilling, but I definitely am interested. I want to, my attention is roused and I want to know why is it that you're so firm behind these candidates? Why do you want me to think like you do, vote like you do, or in some ways worship like you do? Their, their approach roused my attention. And in a very similar sense, as we think about our relationship to God, it's our extravagant displays of support to God, of love for God that draws attention, that rouses the curiosity of others. Rouse others to worship the king. Why? Or no, how rather? Rouse others to worship the king with good reasons why he deserves it. First Chronicles 16 gives them reason. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Rouse others to worship the king with good reasons. One of the reasons is he offers salvation. Another reason is he's objectively better than false gods. Not only that, he is powerful and glorious. He's real. Let's put it that way. Because God is real, he deserves our adoration. Now think about this. If someone would come up to you and say, why are you a Christian? Why should I worship your God? What might you say? What would you respond to that? If you are a Christian, could you make a defense that's not only logical, but also like, man, this is real. This is the real God. This is the one to whom every person's going to give an account to. I, you know, I love the God that I serve. But more than that, my God is real. He's not just a figment of my imagination. He's not just my preference. In fact, I, I know that he's not my preference because so many times he confronts my sin. He challenges me. Rouse others to worship the king with good reasons why he deserves it. He offers salvation. He alone is God. He is powerful and glorious. I mean, it's like the whole Android-Apple debate. You know, like, I'm a, pretty, I'm a pretty vocal Apple supporter. If you're an Android person, get out of my ministry. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. But if someone were to ask you, like, hey, why do you love Android? Why do you love Apple? If you ask me, I'd have a ready reason. Apple is superior in every way, obviously. Doesn't even require conversation. Let's stop talking. You know, one of those things. But then, you know, you might talk about form and you might talk about functionality, uh, giving good reasons for why you believe in what you believe, right? But what about Jesus? Why is Jesus objectively better than all the other gods of the, the culture? In fact, I was having a conversation with somebody and the statement was something like this. Look, I, I respect your religion. I think you guys are great to do what you do. But look, I have a lot of friends that are of different religions, Muslims and Hindus and, you know, Mormons and whatever else. And look, those people are just as sincere as you are. Those people are also quite nice. I feel judged by Christians, but these people, they make me feel nice. They, they make me feel like they love me. Christians are judgmental and bigoted. So while I respect the fact that you believe what you believe, I just can't get on board with that. Which is why, young person, when it comes to offering an apologetic for reasons why people should worship the God that we serve. So, so many times our demeanor counts a, a great deal. But let me tell you what matters even more than your demeanor. Your, your demeanor matters. Okay, your demeanor matters. But here's what you should know. Backward and forward, at 3 a.m. when I wake you up, you should be able to communicate the gospel to people with Scripture. If you're going to rouse others to worship the King and give them good reasons, you need to know the best reason of all. 
He offers salvation in Jesus Christ. And the way that you communicate that is through giving them the gospel truth. God is creator. He's holy. He's just. He's loving. The bad news, the good news, and then the response. Secondly, we're to rouse others to worship the king by going public with your faith. Rouse others to worship the king with good reasons why he deserves it, and rouse others to worship the king by going public with your faith. Verses 28 through 34 in 1 Chronicles 16 give a sense of, like, it's not enough. I want to ascribe to the Lord all the people, everybody in the world. I want all of you to worship him. The worshiper is expansive. He wants everyone to know. It's a universal call to all people in all places, to all creation, to worship the king. Robert and Sarah recently got married, and as Evan stated last week, I had the privilege of officiating and doing their premarital counseling, which was a lot of fun. One of the first things that Sarah did, well, okay, uh, the first thing we did was we signed the license. Okay, well, first thing we went to the, the secret room on the side, and we signed the license, which makes it legal at the county level and the state level. But among one of the first things she did in her honeymoon is she went to her Facebook, and what do you think she did? She changed her name. And then she did probably the more important thing. She changed her status from single to married. That's when it became real. That's when I knew they were married. Like, oh, okay, she's, she's mean, she means it. She's serious. She changed her Facebook status. But how do you think, gentlemen, how do you think, gentlemen, you might feel? You start dating a girl and, like, you guys are serious. And you notice on her Facebook status, it still says single and ready to mingle. Or worse, you get married to her. She won't take your last name. Her Facebook status still says single, ready to mingle, and she kept her last name there. I think you'd feel insulted, right? You'd feel a little gypped. You might wonder if your marriage is actually meaningful to this young lady. You guys can see the absurdity of an illustration like that, but some of you guys have not gone public with your love for Jesus. Some of you are still shy and closeted Christians. You're afraid that people are going to think less of you, and they might. You're afraid that people are going to shun you, and they might. You're afraid of all the ramifications of going public with your relationship with Jesus. You're afraid to change your status from non-religious to I love Jesus Christ no matter what. You're concerned because of what people might think about you. You're concerned about the kind of uh, effect people might, uh, people, uh, the effect you might have on people and whether or not they're going to be friends with you anymore. They'll think you're a Jesus weirdo, like one of those crazy people on the television. They'll ascribe all those things to you. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's what I noticed. Between Robert and Sarah, when she took his last name, it didn't matter what kind of weaknesses Robert had, right? She's like, that's my boy. I love him. He's now my homie. I'm, I'm his homie. We're together forever did not matter if he had some kind of shortcoming, if he was goofy or whatever else. And the same thing is true with Sarah. When he said, I do to Sarah, that relationship became bonded and concrete. did not matter what kind of, uh, what kind of uh, weaknesses Sarah herself had. He accepted her, everything included. She accepted him, everything included. You see, Jesus says this interesting thing. He says, whoever, ashamed of, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of them. You see, when you enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus, he says, I want you to treat me with regard in all areas of your life. It's not enough for us to be a secret relationship. If some, ladies, if some guy asks you, hey, will you be my secret girlfriend just between you and me? Probably don't do that. 
he doesn't have your best interest at heart. And vice versa, young men, if a girl's like, yeah, I'll be your girlfriend, but between us only. Okay, don't tell anybody. That is not the kind of relationship that you want. Yeah, so many people have that relationship with Jesus. You see, you rouse others to worship your king by being public about your relationship, by telling them why he's worthy of adoration, why he is king, why he deserves all of you. Why did you commit to Jesus Christ? Let people know about that. Let people know on your Instagram, on your Facebook, on your TikTok, whatever it is that you have that people see and know is you, make sure that they know that your love for Christ is real and legit. At the very least, that it's vocal. It's the least that we could do. That's what real worship looks like. It's not just singing. It affects all the rest of our lives. At the very least, it affects the way that we interact with others. They should be able to tell, oh, you're a Christian. You go to True North. You go to that Compass Bible Church. I could tell because of the way that you talk. Doesn't mean you have to start using Christian jargon. Like, okay, if someone says, yeah, here's five bucks, you don't have to say, hey, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus. You could, that's fine. You could do that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something bigger than that. I'm talking about you being honest that you are a believer with all kinds of people. Rouse others to worship your king by going public with your faith. Because God is a good king with a proven track record. He calls us to give him extravagant and expansive worship. When the police rolled up behind me, they shined the spotlight on me. I forgot to mention one thing. When they went on the mic, yeah, let me see your hands. Put your hands in the air. That was embarrassing. I'm glad no one was out there, but my backpack on is one of these things. Turn around. Turn around. Okay, so I'll turn to you guys. And that's when the guy rolled up. He did the pat down, you know, one of those things. Hands up. Hands up signifies surrender. It means that you're willing to, to embrace the fact that you are dealing with someone who has authority over you, stronger than you, and someone that you need to submit to. Don't get scared. I'm not telling you you have to raise your hands and worship. You can if you want. But what I am saying is that before God, our hands need to be up in surrender. Christian, obviously the sermon's for you. But non-Christians out here, I want to talk to you for a second. See, for some of you who are non-Christians, your hands are here. You don't want God in your life because you want to fight God. You want to be God. But when you release your grip, and you turn your hands to God and you surrender to him, here's the beauty of that. Your surrender to God allows you to live the life that you were called to live. You're allowed to live the life that God wants for you, the true life that he calls you to. And he says, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's, that's, what, that's what sin does. That's what life on your own does. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what the world offers you. But Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. We've been talking about singing to God all night, worshiping him, but that's only one part of it. This is one aspect of our Christian life. But here's the thing. If you're a non-Christian and you're living for you and you're your own God, let me tell you, you, you know John 10, 10 is, is, is for you, right? The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what the devil does. That's what your world does. That's how you live when it's on your own terms. But when you surrender to God, when you worship him, you say, I give up, you're the king. I'm the one who needs to surrender to you because you're the more powerful, uh, you're the more powerful person in this relationship. 
That's when life clicks. That's when things make sense. That's when you get life right. God is a good king. He is king, but he's a good king. He's the best king. And he's the king that you need to submit to tonight. As you prepare to go to your small groups, one thing I want to do before you dismiss is to sing one closing song. I want to give you a chance to practice some of the things that we just talked about right now. So I'm going to invite our worship team to back up and I'm going to pray for you real quickly. And I want you to practice doing the things that we talked about tonight. To obey the command to worship your king. To think about what you sing to the king and to rouse others to worship the king by the way that you give him affection with your voices, with your bodies, with your minds. Let's pray, God. 